Well, we turn today to um, the last part of chapter 6 of Genesis, and uh, we're actually embarking on a section that extends from Genesis 6 through Genesis chapter 9. And that section specifically deals with Noah and the flood. And this is a very, very important section of Scripture. It's an extended part of Scripture. But as we look at these narrative sections of Genesis, and and Genesis is history. We need to always remind ourselves of that. Genesis is is history. It needs to be read accordingly. Um, We we see God's character uh, in many, many ways. And we'll see God's character on display as we consider Noah and the world in which he lived, the world in which he served, um, his life, uh, the character of God. All of these things are important themes, and they they actually are very pertinent to our day because um, the Lord Jesus in Luke 17 and in Matthew 24 uh, speaks about the times Uh, akin to the days of Noah, when people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, etc. And there's nothing immoral or amoral about uh, eating and drinking, marrying, etc. The the point that's being made is that people were essentially oblivious to what was going on. Uh, They were not attuned to their jeopardy of their souls, and that that is very much the case today. Uh, But it was true in Noah's time. Uh, for approximately a hundred years, Noah labored uh, building the ark, uh, and we'll talk about that. Uh, but what an unusual experience that was. You have to consider where he was, when he was, etc., to be building uh, an ark in those times and in that culture. Uh, but Genesis 6, as we, we begin this passage, uh, in verse 9, the scripture says in Genesis 6, 9, These are the records of the generations of Noah. It begins that way. And in your notes, you'll see a reference to a third Toledot. That's that's a a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means generations. And the only significance of that is that there are ten times in the book of Genesis that you'll find this phrase, the generations. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 4. We saw it in chapter 5, verse 1. We see it here in chapter 6, verse 9. And like all of Scripture, it's very intentional. These are markers, uh, literary markers, that uh, we're about to embark on a new chapter. And I've said this before, but the chapter divisions in our English text are handy to have, but they're they're not inspired. Uh, If you want to see some inspired chapter divisions, uh, these literary markers that Moses uses uh, are good um, places to begin. But they're, they're a new section uh, in redemptive history, and that's exactly the point that he's making. He's breaking off from a previous section. He's beginning to start on a new section, and this new section is, is a very critical section. Again, it runs from chapter 6, verse 9, through uh, the end of chapter 9, all dealing with Noah, uh, the ark, the flood, and life subsequent to the flood, and what do we see about the character of God and the character of man. As we look at this section, there are four uh, words that come to my mind, sin, judgment, destruction, and renewal. Uh, We won't be seeing renewal in this particular section, but uh, that that awaits us. Um, But as we look at 
uh, Noah in particular, there are parallels and there are contrasts. Um, there's a parallel to Adam. Uh, Adam, of course, the, the first person ever on planet Earth uh, created by, by God himself, uh, simply by the word of his mouth, let there be and there was. And from Adam and his wife Eve came all of humanity. And what we're about to see is the extinction of all of humanity with the exception of eight people, Noah, his wife, his sons, and his son's wives, eight people, all of humanity, all of animal life with the exception of uh, a sample of clean and unclean animals uh, would be completely extinguished uh, as a judgment of God. And humanity would begin all over again. Uh, so there's a parallel uh, between Noah and Adam in the sense that each of them are progenitors, if I can use that expression, of the human race. All of us uh, are descendants of Adam. All of us are descendants of Noah uh, because the line of humanity simply stopped uh, in Genesis 6 and following with uh, the flood, with the exception of Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And uh, so we, there's, a, there's an interesting parallel. It's striking as we consider this between Noah and Moses. Remember, you know this, of course, that Moses wrote the entire Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, likely he wrote it during the wilderness wanderings, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But he wrote all of this. And as you, you look at this, this is at the bottom of page one of your notes. As Noah began to write about what transpired with Noah, uh, as Moses wrote about Noah, um, there had to be some really interesting things going on in Moses' mind as he saw certain similarities. Uh, what's interesting is that the word for ark that is used in Genesis 6, verse 17, only occurs in one other place in the Old Testament. It occurs in, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, uh, you know the story, of course. Um, the mother and father of Moses uh, took steps to preserve his life because Pharaoh had ordained that all male Hebrew children would be extinguished, would be murdered. And so his mother uh, took Noah, or Moses and put him in a basket. Uh, the word that's used for basket in Exodus 2 verse 3 is exactly the same word as ark in Genesis 6 verse 17. Matter of fact, the King James uh, very accurately translates Exodus 2 verse 3 as an ark. His mother put him in an ark. And so what did we have? We have in Noah, we have all of humanity being preserved in an ark, and that ark was covered with pitch, sort of an asphaltic base. There's a waterproofing uh, covering that was being used. And if you look at Exodus 2, verse 3, you see exactly the same treatment. That basket was covered with pitch. And what did you have? You have in each case, you had humanity being preserved and a deliverer being preserved in an ark uh, on a watery uh, basin, so to speak, uh, on the flood in Noah's case and in the river in Moses' case. Uh, in Moses' case, you didn't have the extinction of all of humanity, but you saw the Redeemer of, uh, of Israel uh, in, the, in, the, in the land of Egypt, a deliverer. Uh, and it's, it's similar, very striking, but it just, it's amazing 
uh, that these two words, uh, that one word would be used only twice, uh, exactly the same word in the Hebrew uh, for ark in Genesis 6, 17, and basket or ark, as the King James properly translates it in Exodus 2, verse 3. So you, what, a, what a wonderful parallel. And that's all described for you uh, at the bottom of page one of your, your notes. But then you, you consider what Moses reflects upon, and he saw uh, a judgment, in his case, uh, with the Exodus. What took place in the Exodus? You had Pharaoh uh, in hot pursuit of Israel. Israel, after the 10th plague, uh, the death of the firstborn, um, Pharaoh finally relented, um, begrudgingly so, uh, after 10 plagues, and you had Israel um, who had been promised that they would be delivered after 400 years of, of bondage uh, in Egypt, and they came face to face with uh, a real problem because they were uh, covered, encountering on one side the Red Sea, and behind them were Pharaoh's armies in hot pursuit in, in chariots and horses, armed soldiers, a very intimidating presence to be sure. And what happened? Of course, you know that exactly what took place was the Lord opened the Red Sea and delivered all of Israel and then destroyed the enemy. And so you have in this watery episode in Exodus, you have a deliverance and you have judgment. And that's exactly what you have in the life of Noah. You have deliverance and you have judgment. And so Moses, as he's writing this narrative, I'm sure is reflecting on what an amazing parallel uh, there was. And of course, both of them were given explicit instructions about what they were to do. Moses was given instructions about the tabernacle and Noah was given instructions in Genesis 6, verse 14, 15, and 16 uh, on the design of the ark. There's actually an article uh, that I've reproduced for you, at least in part in your handout, from Answers in Genesis about the design of the ark. I'll make a few comments about that a little bit later. But there's a striking parallel as we look at Noah, and there are striking contrasts. The, the contrast, of course, uh, goes to the fact that in uh, Genesis 6, verse 9, uh, is describing Noah as a righteous man. Uh, the King James says just. Uh, a blameless man. King James says perfect or complete or entire. And Noah walked with his God. Uh, there are two men that are described as walking with God. Enoch in uh, chapter 5 and Noah in chapter 6 walking with God. Uh, but you have uh, Noah being described as a just man, uh, a man who was declared righteous in God's sight. Uh, what's important to note, of course, is that the previous verse in Genesis 6, verse 8, uh, says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I made this observation last time, but it bears repeating uh, that Noah was declared just, not because he deserved it, not because on his own initiative, he would have been a righteous person because that's simply not the case. No one is righteous in and of themselves. Uh, all of humanity subsequent to the fall uh, in Genesis 3 uh, suffers from the curse of a fallen nature, uh, being born dead in sin, being born uh, a sinner by nature and by conduct and alienated from the life of God. And so the only way that anyone can be just or righteous before God uh, is by faith, 
Uh, and, of course, in Hebrews 11, 7, uh, you have a reference at the bottom of page 2 uh, that talks about Noah uh, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Uh, so it's very clear that when we look at Genesis 6, 8, and then we observe what is said about Noah in Genesis 6, 9, when he's described as a just man or a righteous man, he's just and he's righteous because God in his infinite mercy set his saving love upon Noah and did a work in his life. Uh, and that's true for all of us. You, you, you are familiar, of course, with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So Noah was declared just uh, simply because of his faith by appropriating the promises of God. We've seen this before with Abel. Uh, we had two brothers, you remember, that made offerings before God. And we don't have time to retrace all of the details, but you had Cain who offered an unsatisfactory offering and Abel who offered uh, a blood sacrifice. And Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. Cain's was not, uh, but Cain was given an opportunity to uh, relent and do something appropriate in, in offering a, a suitable sacrifice, but he did not. He, in, in fact, he hardened himself. Uh, he became downcast and angry uh, towards God rather than repenting. Uh, but Abel, as we see in Hebrews 11, verse 5, uh, was declared righteous or just because he made an appropriate sacrifice. He obeyed God, and he was a person of faith. And that's, there, so we have a parallel between Abel, who was declared righteous, and Noah, who was declared righteous, and the common feature in each of those two men is one word, faith. And that's true for all of us. Uh, all of us, again, subsequent to Genesis 3, are born with a fallen nature. We're born separated from God. We're born, uh, again, sinners by nature and sinners by conduct. And the only way that we can be accepted into the immediate presence of a holy God uh, is by his justification, and justification is God uh, imputing his righteousness to us, not imparting his righteousness to us, but imputing or crediting righteousness to us, not for any righteousness of our own, but the righteousness of Christ, which is credited to us, and that righteousness is essential for us to be declared just before God. That's, that's the way that, that Noah is described as a just man, a righteous man. Uh, top of page three is essentially what uh, I was just sharing with you. Uh, Dr. Barrett uh, makes a, a comment that uh, just or righteous, depending upon your translation, refers to his legal standing as justified or perfect or complete. Um, and it, it refers to his, both his justification and his sanctification. Uh, when we see Noah described as just or righteous, that refers to his justification. When we see him described as perfect or complete or whatever your translation would have, uh, blameless in the New American Standard uh, in his time, that refers to his sanctification. So these are characterizations that God has made of this, uh, this man. But you have this contrast. Here you have Noah, a just man, uh, an obedient man. Uh, and the contrast, of course, is to verse 5. Uh, if you let your eyes look back a little earlier in Gen Genesis chapter 6, uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth 
and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time or continually. Uh, Only evil all the time, continually. That's the the description of humanity. And, And candidly, that's the nature that all of us are born with. The only thing that enables us to be different is when God in his mercy sets his love upon us and the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart and enables us to appropriate the promise of the gospel. That's the only way anyone is just. None of us could ever be just, Noah included, Abel included, nobody subsequent to Genesis 3 could ever be just in and of of their own conduct, their own nature. All of us are condemned. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Noah was the beneficiary of God's saving mercies. So again, we're constantly reminded, uh, even at these early chapters, of God's saving work. And we need to always remember, what am I learning about the character of God as I'm studying these passages? What am I learning about uh, salvation? What am I learning about the character of man as we look at these passages? And there's so much rich teaching, even in these early chapters of Genesis. Uh, but the, the contrast that you see in Genesis 6 is, is reflected in God's assessment of the world at that time. You, I just quoted Genesis 6, 5. God looked at the wickedness of man, which was epidemic proportions in all of creation at that time, and every intent of their heart was only evil all the time. But in Genesis 6, verse 11 and 12, uh, and ultimately verse 13, you have God's assessment of humanity. Um, how the earth, now the earth was corrupt, uh, verse 11, in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence, corrupt and filled with violence. And God looked in verse 12 on the earth and behold, behold is like, take note, this, it's a striking word, behold, uh, see this, it was corrupt. Second time that word is used in, in two verses, for all of the flesh had corrupted. Third use of that word in two verses, their way upon the earth. And then in verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. Here we have the first intimation of, of total destruction. It will ultimately come to pass in verse 17 when he says, I'm sending a flood. But in verse 13, we have a very clear intimation of total destruction by God. The end of all flesh has come. Uh, it's it's a, a, a damning statement that God is making. The end of all flesh has come before me. Why? For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. We don't see this in our English Bibles, but the word that is used for destroy is related to the word that is used for corrupt in the previous verse in verse 12. And you can see this uh, actually uh, in the note under 613. If we were going to paraphrase it, God is saying, I will ruin them for ruining themselves. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 1, where God literally gave people over to the corruption of their own hearts. Why? Because they chose not to honor God, but they honored themselves. Uh, They looked at God's character as it had been revealed in all of creation, and rather than submit themselves to God, and we're included in this this assessment, by the way, in Romans 1, uh, all of us stand before God as as corrupt, uh, as corrupt as Romans 1. The only thing that makes us difference is that God has given us a new heart, that he's redeemed us, he's delivered us from our corruption. Otherwise, we'd be on the same trajectory as humanity in Genesis 6. Um, But we have this, God is saying, I'm going to give them over to their own ruin because they have ruined themselves. They have corrupted themselves, and I'm going to destroy them totally. It's a very strong word. I'm going to blot them out. 
There, there will be none left. The only ones who will be left will be the one upon whom I set my favor. And who was that? That was Noah. One person I set my favor upon Noah. And because I'm going to use him as the one through whom the promise of Genesis 3.15 ultimately would be accomplished. You remember the promise, right? You had the fall in Genesis 3. And then God gave a, 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 a note to Satan uh, that his head would be crushed. Uh, but he said that the seed of the woman would be bruised, uh, but that the seed of the woman would be the one through whom the deliverer, the Messiah, would ultimately come. Eve thought that person was Cain. Uh, I've been given a child, and obviously that was not the case. And then Cain murdered his brother Abel. So who will this person be? And then there was a third one that was born, Seth. And, and, and Eve said, God has appointed him. He's given this one to us. And it was through Seth. It certainly was not through Cain that the promise of the Messiah would come. And so we have in the person of Noah, uh, we have the, the promise will be fulfilled. How do we know that? Because everybody else was exterminated. So God is going to accomplish his saving purposes in Genesis 3.15 through this deliverer that upon whom he has set his love. Uh, and, and the point bears repeating that God's promises never fail. His, you could look at the, the trajectory of humanity in Genesis 4 and in Genesis 6, and you could say the world is just utterly vile. Uh, how will it be that God will send forth one through whom our souls can be redeemed? And, and the Lord has said, I've, I've, I've set, and he, he chose an imperfect vehicle. Well, we'll see this in Genesis 9. Noah was not perfect in, in an absolute sense. When, it, when we see the word perfect, it means complete. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. Uh, but we'll see, it, it's, it's very sad. There's a very sad outcome uh, in Noah's life and in the life of one of his sons upon whom a curse is actually pronounced that the sin nature continues, of course. It, it continues in all of humanity, including Noah. Uh, but we have the promise of God of a Redeemer that ultimately will be fulfilled. What do we see? We see this man upon whom God set his saving mercies and declared him just, Noah, as a preacher of righteousness. In 2 Peter 2, um, it's, there's a, a section that begins in verse 4, and the section deals with the fact that God knows how to judge the unrighteous and to deliver those whom he, he will save. And that's the point that he's making. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, and that's almost certainly referring to the sons of God that we referred to earlier, but cast them into hell or to Taurus and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, his wife, his sons, and their, their wives, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he goes on, and then verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the righteous, unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God is a just God, he is a holy God. He, he, he will and he always does judge iniquity. He always judges transgression. Every sin will be judged. And the only way that any of us will uh, be saved from uh, our own sin being judged, because no sin is ignored in the character of God, is through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every sin has to be paid. And, and so praise God that the Lord Jesus in our stead is our sinless substitute, uh, the, the one who took upon himself the judgment that we deserve uh, bore the wrath of God as our propitiation, uh, the propitiation of the wrath of God, 
so that God's righteous character would be upheld and that we would be set free from the judgment that we so well deserve. But Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and I'm reminded of Paul's words in Philippians 2, where he calls upon us to be as lights shining in the midst of a dark and perverse generation, Philippians 2.15. And that's exactly what Noah was. He was a light shining in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. All of humanity was on a trajectory of corruption. That's exactly what the scripture says. And Noah was standing out in the midst of all of this, which takes us to the fact that the Lord said, I'm going to destroy all of humanity with the exception of you and your family. Uh, and, and so Noah was given a responsibility uh, to do certain things. And that, that those certain things are to build an ark. Now you've got to remember that where Noah was functioning was essentially, uh, it was on dry land and no one had ever built a boat before. Uh, it, it was, you're building a structure that no one on planet Earth has ever seen. It, nothing even remotely like it. Now, there's an article that I've included in the handout for you, at least excerpts from Answers in Genesis, uh, that is fascinating when it goes to the actual dimensions of the ark, uh, 300 cubits by 50 by 30, uh, which essentially translates to about a 500-foot vessel. But the dimensions, uh, there was a study that was done, uh, and I don't, I don't have time to go through all of the, um, the, the article itself, uh, but in, I think it was 1993, there was a Korean... Uh, shipbuilder uh, who looked at the dimensions of the ark and compared it to other ratios of length and width and height and the structure not surprisingly that you see in the ark is absolutely perfect every other ratio of length and width and height uh, results in unstable times and, and Noah was going to be on very tumultuous waters uh, high winds tumultuous waters the whole earth is being destroyed and, and you can look at this article at your own length uh, when you get an opportunity to do that. But Noah is building, in the midst of a corrupt world, uh, a boat. And he was given the dimensions. Uh, and he actually, it, it, for a hundred years, uh, literally the scripture says he was 500 years old uh, when his sons were born, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, in, in Genesis 5, verse 32. And later you read uh, that he was 600 uh, years old when the flood came. Uh, so he was building uh, for something like a hundred years uh, this vessel in the middle of probably a desert area or some type of dry land uh, where everyone is observing this and you can imagine the conversations that took place. If you've ever been to the Ark Encounter, uh, they've got sort of a video that you can watch and, and it, I think it fairly treats the fact that the, uh, the laughing, the jesting, uh, the criticism, the, the, the looks that he must have received, but the faithful work for a hundred years uh, building the very first vessel in complete obedience to God. And that's, that's a very important point because in Genesis 6, 22, uh, the scripture says that Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. Uh, there's a, an expression that's used four times in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7 that Noah obeyed God. Uh, and there are two, two expressions in Genesis 6, 22, uh, Genesis 7, verse 5, Genesis 7, verse 9, and Genesis 7, verse 16, uh, that all speak about Noah obeying God. And so you have a man upon whom God has set his saving mercies, faithfully laboring. Why did he labor? Number one, because God commanded him to do it. 
And number two, because the scripture says in verse 18, uh, and no further details are given, but verse 18, that I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. The covenant is not really elaborated until after the flood. In Genesis 9, um, verses 1 through 17 or thereabouts, you have the content of the, the covenant that is made. But there was a promise, and that's, it was the bare word of a promise that Noah had. He didn't have the full explication of the Noahic covenant until after the flood. Uh, and the flood had gone on for about a year. By the time he landed on dry land, uh, he had been in this ark uh, with his family and these animals, but he had been obeying perfectly uh, in building the ark according to the dimensions that had been given him. People wonder, uh, you know, how can you do this? And there's a, a comment that is given. I'll just uh, move move over. There's a, a quotation. Let's see if I can find it. Yeah, here's the first at the bottom of page five. Um, 450 feet, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall, about twice the length of a Boeing 747. And you had one man and his family, three sons, building this over a a century of work uh, with the tools that they had. And you can imagine the trees that they had to to fall, uh, the the work that they had to, to join the timbers, to create timbers from uh, trees with the tools that they had to shape them to create an appropriate curvature in the the, the building itself of the ark uh, to design it with three floors uh, according to exactly what God had ordained according to his measurements and he obeyed all of the, the measurements because God gave him perfect measurements to work with uh, a massive undertaking uh, what, a, what an act of obedience for all of those years I'm sure in the midst uh, of questions that he would have, like, I'm building this, but I have no idea what will happen. And, it, and how could he? Nothing like this had ever happened before. And frankly, it will never happen again. Uh, but, but he labored in complete uh, obedience. Uh, what's interesting is that the word that is used for flood in Genesis 6, verse 17, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, uh, the word that is used for flood in that translation actually gives rise to our English word cataclysm. Uh, and that's, so it, it's, it's a word uh, that was used, it, cataclysmic is exactly what took place when all of, of humanity was extinguished with the exception of eight people, uh, all uh, animals, birds, crawling creatures, um, all non-marine life with the exception of the um, seven pairs of unclean animals and two pairs of clean animals that were brought on board, all of those uh, were extinguished in judgment of God. Uh, but you have them entering the ark uh, and, and moving forward at that point. But the God gives him the fact that I will establish a covenant uh, with you. And at the top of page 7, um, there's a note by Kent Hughes. The specifics of the covenant were unfolded at the end of the flood, Genesis 9, 1 to 17. But he makes this observation, this promise, this bare word of God was what sustained Noah for a century of labor and the final seven days of gathering the animals and then seeing the door slammed tight. He he really didn't have the details of the covenant. They did not come until the consummation of the flood and he was landing on dry land 
and God had preserved him. And then God gave him the specifics of the covenant, the Noahic covenant. All he had was, I will establish a covenant with you and your families to go in this ark and I'm going to destroy everything else. That's all he had. But what did he do? That's all he needed. God had given him the command and he obeyed in the power of the spirit. He, he obeyed. God gave him the strength to do it. He gave him all the wisdom they needed to do it. Uh, but then we began to consider um, the obedience of, uh, of Noah. Uh, and we mentioned this a little bit earlier. But when we read these um, narrative sections of Scripture, um, we see certain repeated expressions. And we should always take note when we see those repetitions. I made mention earlier of the repeated use of the word corrupt in verses 11 and 12 and 13. Uh, the, the repeated uses of the word corrupt. We should notice that. Uh, Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is describing the utter devastation morally of humanity and the fact that God would be ruining them because they had ruined themselves because of their sinfulness. But the other expression that we see repeated in four instances is the fact that Noah obeyed God. He did as God had commanded him. Uh, Genesis 6.22, Genesis 7.5, Genesis 7.9, Genesis 7.16. Uh, there's two versions of Noah's obedience, but the essence is exactly the same. Noah was an obey, a, a man who obeyed God faithfully for a century of hard work, relying upon the promise of God. And, and so it's not surprising that he was declared a, a faithful man in Hebrews 11, 7, uh, because he took God's word at face value and stayed right there with it. But he did exactly what God had given him. And so you have these refrains of obedience. That's the essence of what's being said at Genesis, uh, page uh, 7 of the notes. Um, there's a, a quotation. Uh, actually, this is one I was looking for. Uh, it's on top of page 8 by John Calvin at the top. He says, let the reader reflect on the multitude of trees to be felled, uh, the great labor of conveying them from wherever they had to fall the trees, uh, the difficulty of joining them together. Uh, the matter was long deferred, for the holy man was required to be engaged more than a hundred years in most troublesome labor. Uh, so this is no small thing. This is, I, I can't imagine working on a project of this magnitude, this complexity for that period of time, but that's exactly what Noah did. And that's the man that God would, would use to ultimately bring forth humanity and through whom ultimately the Messiah would come. This is the new humanity. Uh, because the old humanity is being completely destroyed. But he did all that God had commanded him to do. And so we have, uh, what's interesting is there are a couple of passages that, that I noticed. Not only did Noah obey, but the animals obeyed. Uh, why did the animals obey? I, I say that because Genesis 6, verse 20, uh, if you look in the scripture, it says, of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing, on the ground after its kind, two of every kind, what will they do? They will come to you to keep them alive. So if you're wondering how was it that God, uh, that Noah had all of these animals to get rounded up uh, and come in pairs, uh, the, the mix of clean and unclean in the appropriate numbers, seven uh, unclean and, and, and uh, seven and two clean, it's because God uh, is a sovereign God. And, and just like Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will, like rivers of water. 
Well, the kings, the, the animals are also uh, obviously under the sovereign control of God. And, and it, imagine this parade of all of these animals uh, coming into the ark. I, I won't even try to describe this. I, I can't. But the scripture says in Genesis 6.20, and it's, it's later described in Genesis 7.9 and Genesis 7.16, that God brought every single one of those animals in the appropriate combinations to the ark. So Noah... All he had to do was get the door open, and ultimately the scripture says that God shut him in. So if you want to know, when, when Noah was in the ark and all of his family was in there, who was it that nailed the door shut? The scripture says God nailed the door shut. God brought all the animals. God nailed the door shut, or, or whatever he used to, to, to close it, and then they were in, in a safe place, and then God brought the flood. We'll be talking about the flood uh, next time, Lord willing. Uh, but I, I just think it's fascinating to look at the way that God worked in the life of a man. And, and then he worked in the lives of all of these animals as well uh, to bring them. Uh, can you, I just can't imagine this parade of all of these animals, uh, birds, uh, and uh, all different kinds. Uh, there's an article that I've reproduced for you in part from Answers in Genesis. People will struggle uh, with how was this ark that was built big enough uh, to contain all of the different species of animals that are, exist. And the answer to that, number one, is that uh, they were after their kind and they were not after species. Uh, the species are more numerous than the kinds, but the species come ultimately uh, by interbreeding of the kinds. So you've got, uh, and, and there are people that are much smarter than I am that are trained in these things, that, that know how to figure these things out. Uh, but, the, but the article basically goes through the number of species and how big they were. And if you wonder how did the dinosaurs get on there, the answer, uh, and it makes perfect sense. Uh, probably they were juveniles, uh, so they had uh, younger versions. Uh, but believe me, every single animal that needed to be brought on that ark, there was ample room. Uh, people have measured, uh, actually used 3D simulations, and about 60 or to 70 percent of the available space was used, which gave them 30 to 35 or 40 percent of open space uh, because they had to have food and they had to have the ability to move around and, and take care of these animals for a year uh, while they were floating on the waters. But God orchestrated all of this. He literally designed every single thing. Uh, and so as we look at, at the middle of page nine, uh, I'd like to reproduce these for you because we've given these out, uh, these family uh, worship study guides. And this is an excerpt from Joel Beakey's uh, family worship study guide. And, and if you don't have one, let us know. We'd, we'd love for you to, to have this so that you can use this with your families. Um, but there, at the end of every chapter, literally every chapter of the Bible, uh, there are thought questions and applications. And it's so helpful. Uh, literally, from Noah we learn patience and faith. Noah took more than a hundred years to build the ark. He patiently worked and witnessed to the people who rejected his message, 2 Peter 2.5. We live in similar days. I mentioned this earlier, Luke 17 and Matthew 24. Let's speak of this. And need to preach faithfully despite the mocking of men against the gospel. You can only imagine the mocking that our dear brother Noah experienced for a century as he was building this ark in the middle of, of, of dry land. Uh, the only safe place from the flood was the ark being built. The only safe place from God's eternal judgment is Christ. Secondly, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's Genesis 6, verse 8. And he walked with God. That's Genesis 6, verse 9. 
Significantly, Noah found grace before he was described as just and perfect. That's a very important point. It is grace that enables faith. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And God regarded Noah as just in consequence of that grace and caused him to believe and obey. May the Lord help us to walk with him. Uh, trust in Christ and obey him, for then you will abide in his love. These are good applications, and they're appropriate applications from what we see uh, with Noah. Uh, but then at the bottom of page 9 is the first article uh, of two that I've excerpted from you, uh, for you. And this one deals with the actual structure of the ark, its size, its dimensions, its seaworthiness. Um, what's interesting, uh, top of page 10, is the author makes the point that the Hebrew words uh, that are used uh, in our Bibles um, for rooms um, are elsewhere rendered ness, uh, and pitch would normally be called covering, and a window would be noonlight, and so they've uh, translated this, the teba, or the ark, was made from gopher wood. We have no idea what gopher wood, but it was obviously an appropriate wood. It had nests inside, and that makes sense. You've got animals, they've got to have a place to lay. And it was covered with a pitch-like substance inside and out. By the way, that's exactly how Moses' basket was made. Uh, it was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. It had a noon light and ended a cubit upward and above, a door on the side, and there were three decks. Uh, and then it's got a discussion about this, article, uh, this study that was done in 1993 uh, that looks at um, the, the bottom page, uh, the conflicting demands of stability, resistance to capsizing, comfort, sea-keeping and strength. And the ark, amazingly, should be amazing, I mean, God is perfect in all that he does, has the same proportions as a modern cargo ship. Is that, does that surprise you? It shouldn't surprise you. I mean, God is, he's, you know, designs all of these things. Um, but then top of page 11 uh, talks about the conditions that would have been existing uh, on the sea during the flood. Uh, and the fact that this structure uh, would have been just ideal for handling waves as high as 100 feet. Uh, so in today, they build uh, cargo ships designed with essentially the same dimensions as you read about in Genesis 6. So then you've got an article uh, that picks up at that point uh, about how do all these animals get on the ark. And you can read this at your convenience. I'm uh, running a little bit out of time at this point. Uh, but what's interesting is it goes through the number of kinds, it goes through the sizes of the animals, uh, it goes through a very plausible explanation about uh, why they would have had juvenile varieties of the larger animals uh, and, and, and exactly uh, the like. Uh, but according to ARC Encounter estimates, it's projected only 15% of the ARC animals would have achieved an, an average adult mass of over 22 pounds. This means that the vast majority of ark animals were smaller than a beagle, with most of them being much smaller. So how many were there? Uh, and the ark encounter has projects that there were fewer than 7,000 animals on the, uh, on the ark. That's a lot of animals. I mean, they had to feed these animals, but you had uh, eight of them. You had four men and their wives, and there were 7,000 animals. So they were busy people, uh, but they, were, they weren't going anywhere. They were, uh, they were on the ark, uh, but it must have been a fascinating ex a life of feeding 7,000 animals. But they had all the food and the, and the animals. God brought every single animal. Scripture says that in Genesis 6, verse 20, that God brought all the animals there. So what an amazing narrative. And we've only begun to, to talk about this. We'll pick up, Lord willing, with um, Genesis 7, verse 1 and following next time. 
and we'll, we'll get into the, the nature of the, of the flood itself. Uh, but um, I just wanted to share with you what an amazing God that we have as we see uh, the Lord preserving his promise of Genesis 3.15 by setting his mercy upon one man and working through the life of that one man and his family uh, to bring forth humanity and ultimately uh, the Messiah without whom none of us would have any hope whatsoever. But because God makes promises and he always keeps his promises, you look at the fascinating way that God preserved his promise uh, by saving one man in the middle of a boat, uh, in the middle of a desert with a flood uh, and, and ext extinguishing all of the corruption that was around him. Father, we thank you.